Do you have what it takes to take Captain Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise into the final frontier? Well, let's find out with Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back with you once again to, in a slightly different manner, talk about some games from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So, like I mentioned at the end of the last show, uh, over the past two weeks, I've been uh, away uh, out of town for work, and then I was out of town on my annual really awesome ski vacation. And uh, so I unfortunately haven't really had the time to uh, to sit down and do the uh, the research that is necessary to uh, to put out a show. But I didn't want to leave you guys hanging for, you know, three weeks or a month. I know, you know, I do that occasionally and I hate it every time it happens. So I decided to do something a little bit different. But before we get to that, I have been keeping up a little bit on the news. So, as I said, I've been away the past two weeks, and I haven't been able to keep up on stuff as much as I usually do. But you know, this morning I was able to uh, to peruse, you know, the Facebook group and my feeds and all that stuff, and I did come across two things that I felt like were uh, relevant to talk about. First, it seems that Tim Schafer's plans to split Broken Age into two separate games has, or not two separate games, but two episodes, let's say, has succeeded. Uh, in an interview with Games Industry, Schaefer stated that they have definitely made enough from the sales of the first part of Broken Age to be able to complete the second part. I haven't had a chance to play through part one as of yet. Everything I've heard about it has been positive, but uh, I will definitely plan on doing it myself very, very soon and maybe putting out a little uh, a little corollary review podcast on that, but we shall see. Next, it seems that, uh, well, I wasn't around, Descent and Descent 2 have become available on Steam. Uh, the first game is $6.99 and the second is $9.99. Always great to have another way to get some old games, DRM or no DRM. I do love Steam. It's kind of my central games repository and, uh, you know, I kind of, aside from stuff, uh, well, no, I put some GOG stuff in there, do kind of the uh, outside of Steam game ad thing, but... Uh, Really, really great that uh, Descent got on to Steam. So that's it for the news. Uh, I'm sure a lot more stuff happened. Uh, if, if I missed anything super important, please drop me an email or post in the Facebook group, and I'll be sure to, uh, to include it in the next show. Okay, so in addition to some news, I got some follow-up emails on the last series of episodes on Dune. So firstly, we have Eric Andre. He writes, hi, Mr. Mastriani. Ooh, very, uh, very official. Anyways, hi, Mr. Mastriani. We share an interest in good old classic games. Just like yourself, I love both reading about playing and listening to podcasts about retro games. I am a game reviewer and especially enjoy writing articles on games such as the ones featured on your show. I found your podcast a few months ago, uh, I believe it was when the Tex Murphy episodes were uh, was released due to the official Facebook page of Big Finish Games. Then I started from the beginning, skipped a few, but listened to the most interesting episodes. Since I've had access to a PC since the mid-80s, I remember a lot of these games. I am impressed by how you dig up information about games. For example, I was not familiar with the backstory of King's Quest. I also enjoy episodes with familiar games which I personally never played, such as Myst. Since this is a retro show, the episodes are still enjoyable months and years after they were recorded. My only drawback is that the outdated news section tends to be a bit long from time to time. While it is tempting to comment on all the episodes I have listened to, I think it would be more interesting for you, as well as the listeners, to just focus on the most current episode. As so many others, I really love the Dune universe. Dune 2 was actually my first step into this universe. I remember that I first saw this game in the home of a friend of my cousin. I was so impressed with the unit who acknowledged orders, wonderful music, as well as the magical universe. When I got the game myself sometime later, 
I realized that this guy had a sound card and my PC speaker was not able to play these unit sounds. Even though I now know that it sounds shit, uh, I really didn't care about the lower quality music of my PC speaker. The gameplay was so unique that I just had to love it. It was just later that I discovered it was based on both a book as well as a movie. Love them both today. I know that many people didn't like the remake Dune 2000, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. First of all, it's funny to see how the introduction video is remade scene by scene. I'm surprised that you didn't use the original sound from Dune 2 in your episode, instead reading it up for yourself. Uh, I still understand the problems with Dune 2000. If you were not a fan of the universe, it seems a bit strange. Also, it is based on CNC and Red Alert Engine, but with a lot fewer options. The three sides are still very similar, but and have a few unique units. Emperor, on the other hand, was really great. I think far too many people gave up on the Dune universe with Dune 2000. The first true 3D RTS from Westwood had so many new features, I actually think it holds up pretty good today. Since Dune 2 has been named the father or grandfather of all RTS games, I was very curious what the first Dune game was about. I would assume that this was the great-grandfather of all RTS games. I remember that I asked online in the 90s using Usenet newsgroups, do you remember this? And uh, some people told me it was an adventure game. I was not sure if they were joking or not. However, I was not able to find this game, so I just had to take their word for it. Then, about 10 years ago, I managed to find the game. I really loved how they transformed the novel into a semi-adventure game, but still retained important strategic elements. Some years later, I found the CD-ROM version and played it again. I spotted some differences, but the CD-ROM version is better in almost all ways. Today, the game holds up much better than Westwood's Dune 2. I look forward to hearing more episodes. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Eric Andre. Well, thank you. And uh, yeah, I do remember uh, Usenet use groups. Uh, I didn't use them a ton, but I was really big on uh, BBS messaging back in the day. And uh, things like Fidonet and Spidernet. So you'd kind of log into the BBS and you would uh, have a message client and the message client would download all the messages and pack it in a packet from that day. And you could read them offline so you didn't have to stay on the phone. Then you could... Uh, you know, put up your replies to certain messages, upload your packets back up, and then they'd get sent across, you know, at midnight across the uh, the Phytonet or Spidernet or whatever net network to, you know, whatever university was hosting it. And uh, really interesting. And yeah, you know, I did spend a bit of time in news, Usenet news groups, but uh, wasn't super big. But thank you for that. Really, really great. Uh, really great memories. And uh yeah, I was always super big into sound, and uh, the PC speaker just hurt me a lot of the time. And I know, I remember as soon as as I could convince my parents to get me one, I got uh, I got my hands on a sound card, even though it was a crappy Sound Blaster emulation. Uh, I think it was called a Sound Wonder. I've mentioned it in the past, and it wasn't very good. It had a a volume wheel on the back of it, and I could use unpowered speakers with it and all that stuff. So. Uh, yeah, really, really great. Thank you very much for those Dune memories. Next, we have an email from Father Beast. He writes, wow, cool. The development story kept pushing my memory buttons. First, there was mention of Mars Saga, which I played on the Commodore 64 to extreme distraction. That was one of the first games my wife and I fought over the computer to play. A neighbor also played and got sucked in just as bad as we did. One time his wife left for the day and took the game disc so our neighbor would clean the house and change diapers while she was gone. I played it all the way through on the Commodore and looked for it when we eventually got a PC and found Minds of Titan. I thought it was strange that they changed the name for the PC release, I didn't know the details, and thought it had made and thought it, that it made a whole lot more sense set on Mars rather than Titan. I never did play through on the PC, so I never noticed any major improvements. The second game you mentioned that poked my memory was Battletech the Crescent Hawk's Revenge. I never actually played that one, but I played obsessively the previous game, Battletech the Crescent Hawk's Inception, also obsessively on the Commodore 64. I always wanted to play the sequel, but somehow never did. Anyway, love the show. Looking forward to the replay of the Treks, Treks and Sci-Fi episode next time. Well, thanks, Father Beast. And, uh, you know, I do feel uh, like I kind of missed out a little bit because we never had a Commodore or an Amiga or anything like that. We we were always uh, until we had an Apple II to begin with, and then we moved into because my father was a very serious business programmer and all that stuff. Uh, we moved right straight into the PCs. I had um, family friends that had a Commodore, and whenever we'd go there, we'd play. And it seemed like they had an unlimited number of games on that thing. And 
I guess I was very young. I was just a bit too young to really experience the Commodore, uh, you know, in its heyday. And so we went there. It seemed like they had all these games. Some of them were on cartridges. Some of them were on discs. And every time we went there, we played something different. And, uh, you know, it makes me a little bit sad that uh, I didn't get uh, quite as much time to uh, to experience the Commodore as I obviously did with the PC. So thanks. And finally, a message from Dave. And he writes, Joe, quite enjoyed your recent two-part epic on Dune video games from the early 90s. I have to say, I can be somewhat obsessive over certain titles from this era. Whenever I buy a new computer, one of the first things I do is make sure Space Quest and Star Control run on it. However, unlike some of my other favorites, I really didn't know much about how the Dunes were developed. I never quite understood why these games were so different from each other. Up until 1992-1993, my brother and I were still trying to stay loyal to our Commodore Amiga. So... Well, friends of mine were quite aware of Dune 2, which was becoming quite popular on the PC, we were the only ones with a copy of Dune 1 that I can remember. It should have clicked that these games were from completely different developers, but I guess at my young age, I just saw the Virgin logo and assumed they were developed in relation to each other. My feeling is that Dune 1 was, a, was much more popular in the UK and Europe, and because our Commodore Amiga was doing better overseas, Uh, we were more familiar with Dune 1 than the average Canadian or American. I had no idea about the Captain Blood connection. That game was an early favorite of mine, again on the Amiga, and I now see some similarity between the two titles, especially the long, boring flight sequences. That aside, Dune was still a good game, and Dune 2, or the 2000 remake, is another title I install on new machines so I can smash the goody two-shoes Atreides and Barbaric Harkonnen as the Ordos every now and again. Anyways, looking forward to the episode on 25th Anniversary and Judgment Rights. By 1993, I had more or less completely converted to PC, and I remember enjoying both those titles a lot. Unfortunately, I've had a lot of difficulty getting these to run on modern computers, so any insight you can provide would be appreciated. Regards, David from Toronto. So, another Torontonian. And, um, yeah, I do remember. I don't think I'm going to mention it in the Treks and Sci-Fi excerpt here. But uh, there is a bit of effort required to get these things working in DOSBox. And um, I guess I could talk about it here. Yeah, I think especially Judgment Rights, the CD-ROM version, you do have to mess around with uh, virtual CD-ROM drives in DOSBox and trying to get them to point at the right place. And if they don't, it doesn't boot. Or if they do, the sound doesn't work. So there's definitely a little bit of, uh, of work there. Uh I was able to do some Googling and found some posts in the DOSBox forums and other places where uh, where I was able to find some help. So it took, it took maybe, I don't know, about half an hour to get uh, Judgment Rights up and running, but it wasn't really all that awful. So thanks everyone for those emails and let's get rolling on to the main event. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, that's it for emails. Now onto the main topic, Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights. So as I said, and as people have indicated in the emails, uh, this is an excerpt from a guest show I did for my buddy Rico Dosti over at the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast way back in September of 2012. So I know I've probably already mentioned this in the past, but if you have any passing interest whatsoever in Star Trek, Star Wars, or any sci-fi TV, movies, comics, or any other nerdy thing you can think of, head over to treksf.com and take a look. Treks and Sci-Fi has been around for over seven years, and Rico has built a really, really great community of folks over there, including yours truly. So here we go with some Trek gaming. Take it away, 18 or so month younger version of Joe. Thank you. 
So today, I want to talk to you guys about two really great Star Trek PC games from the early 90s. They are called Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights. Also both with colons. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop with the, the, the running colon gag. But anyways, I think it would first, before we really get into the, the nitty gritty and the details of these two games, it would probably be helpful if we talked a little bit about where Star Trek video gaming started. So, you know, we always hear stories about how Star Trek inspired very smart people to take an interest in science, technology, space exploration, and all of that. And the most literal and most commonly held up example of this are the guys at Mission Control at NASA and the naming of the prototype Space Shuttle Enterprise and other really awesome, you know, very directly related space program stuff like that. However, NASA and the aerospace industry are most certainly not the only area that benefited from the imagination of Trek fans. Trek also influenced the fledgling computer industry of the late 60s, 70s, and onward even to today. Trek influenced things like computer interface design, data storage media, and most relevant to the discussion we're having today, became the subject of an ever-evolving and ever-growing pool of video games. Star Trek video gaming can trace its history as far back as 1971, when a guy named Mike Mayfield and a few of his high school friends were brainstorming a bunch of ideas for computer games to make. One of these ideas was a Star Trek space combat simulator, which they called Super Star Trek. Um, over his summer holidays, Mike tried to develop as many of this these kind of ideas as he could using time on an SDS Sigma 7 mainframe computer that he had an account for over at the University of California, Irvine, or I guess it's called UC Irvine. Uh, now, <laughs> the word mainframe might lead you to believe that this was a large and powerful machine. And, you know, at the time, it was. But even comparing this computer to my iPhone would be giving it way too much credit. These old 60s-era mainframes were basically large pocket calculators. Suffice it to say, Mike made his game and it got noticed. Um, you know, it was a lot of fun for the time. Without getting into too much detail, the goal of Super Star Trek is to pilot the Enterprise across the sectors and quadrants of the galaxy, which were represented basically by a grid of dots. Uh, you're required to search out a predetermined number of Klingon ships spread across the galaxy and destroy them before time runs out. You have access to things like short and long-range scanners, you can fire phasers or photon torpedoes, repair and rearm at star bases, and honestly, despite having basically no graphics whatsoever, this is a very complete game that, you know, came out back in 1971. Eventually, Super Star Trek was ported onto many different computer systems, including the venerable Apple II and IBM PC. Uh, from those humble beginnings, Trek PC gaming was born. Other games were developed, including more kind of, you know, in this vein of kind of tactical strategy, combat simulation games, text adventure games, where you played through Trek adventures in the role of Kirk and crew by typing instructions into a text parser, and, you know, much, much more stuff like that. According to Wikipedia, there were at least 16 separate Star Trek video games released in a wide variety of genres between 1971 and 1991. So in that span of 20 years, that's, you know, almost one game per year. So this brings us to the year 1992 and the release of the first game I want to focus on, Star Trek, colon, 25th anniversary. Now, I know technically the 25th anniversary of Star Trek was in 1991, but this game was most definitely made in honor of the 25th anniversary of the show. Uh, it was developed and published by a very well-known game company at the time called Interplay, and was probably one of the first fully licensed Trek games to be developed for personal computers. Uh, Star Trek 25th Anniversary is what we like to call an adventure game. Over at my podcast, The Upper Memory Block, uh, where I talk about games of this era, I like to define the genre of the game before we get rolling so we have a basic idea of what type of game we're getting into. Adventure games require the player to control one or more of the main characters and direct them through some type of quest or mission or adventure, I guess you can say, you know, being very descriptive. Uh, they are usually given this mission right at the beginning of the game 
and have to interact with objects, other characters, and travel to different places in the game world to complete said mission or quest. Uh, Generally, along the way, you're challenged with a variety of puzzles, which usually require some kind, you know, some form of logic and creativity to resolve. Examples are, you know, say, finding a way to open a locked door that you need to get through, or perhaps finding parts to repair a broken machine, or helping another character in exchange for some critical information that you need to, uh, to move forward. So basically, an adventure game is a pretty good approximation of playing through a TV show or movie where you, as the player, have some degree of control over the characters and what they do. Now, with that in mind, you can make an educated guess about the gameplay style of both Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights. Indeed, you directly control Captain James T. Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise, guiding them through a series of standalone, unrelated episodes, just like in the TV series. Fighting enemies, engaging in diplomacy, investigation, and, you know, you get to kind of take part in all the cool tropes that, uh, that have developed, you know, in, uh, in the original series. So let's get down to details. Uh, I want to concentrate mostly on the story of these games, so I'll open with a, a bit of description of the gameplay first. So again, like with the genre, we can have a bit of a frame of reference for the various missions or episodes that you play through. The game is split into two separate modes. Each mission starts with the crew in their customary positions on the bridge of the Enterprise. And as with the show, missions generally begin with either a captain's log being recorded by Kirk, informing you what the Enterprise is in the process of doing, or by a message from Starfleet, usually from an admiral, again, describing the objectives of the mission that you are about to embark on. So here's an example of a mission briefing, I guess you can call it, from the first mission of 25th anniversary called Demon World. Message coming in from Starfleet. On screen, Lieutenant. Jim, the Enterprise is ordered to travel to Pollux 5. The natives report that alien life forms have been attacking the settlers near a mine at Mount Idol. You are to report to the high prelate of the colony. The settlers are members of the Acolytes of the Stars sect. The description of the attackers vary, but all say that the attackers resemble creatures from many Earth religions known as demons. Starfleet wants you to determine the nature of these creatures and resolve the situation without bringing harm to the colonists. Starfleet out. So, as you can hear, we need to navigate the ship from its current location, wherever it may be, to the planet Pollux 5. Uh, You control the Enterprise in two ways. Firstly, you have direct control over the ship's impulse speed, direction of travel, and weapon systems via either the keyboard or mouse. Uh, Your view of surrounding space is provided by the main view screen. Here we see one of the limitations of ship operations in this game. Uh, The main viewer always looks to the front. You turn the ship by moving the mouse pointer around the main viewer, and, you know, moving it up makes the ship go up, moving it left makes the ship turn left, and, you know, etc. You can roll the ship on its its axis, but uh, frankly, this isn't incredibly useful aside from, you know, if something looks like it's upside down, you can make it look right side up. All other ship's functions are performed by clicking on the various crew members or hitting the keyboard hotkeys. For example, to arm weapons, you either hit W or click on Chekhov and select the arm weapons button that pops up after you've clicked on it. This turns your mouse pointer from a little enterprise icon into a targeting reticle that you can place again anywhere on the main view screen and fire. The Republic is arming weapons and raising shields. I suggest we do the same, Captain. Arming weapons. Raising shields. Target analysis of... So, the left mouse button fires phasers, which are easier to use at long range, but relatively weak. And the right mouse button fires photon torpedoes, which are slow moving, but deliver more damage. Uh, They're ideal at closer range. So when entering combat, as you just heard, Sulu can raise the shields and also handles target analysis. Uh, So, as a bit of a departure from the, uh, the bridge of the Enterprise on the show, now either side of the bridge, kind of where those little, uh... I guess you can call them screens with, uh, with celestial anomaly pictures on them that were in the show, I guess, a bit more uh, decorative than anything. Those are replaced by two very large screens that uh, display either the status of the Enterprise or the status of the last attacked enemy ship. Uh, it's helpful to know what the status of enemy shields are, what part of their ship was damaged, etc., and the same about the Enterprise. Uh, you know, knowing 
how the Enterprise is damaged, you can then turn to Scotty. So Scotty sits at the engineering station, as he usually does, and handles damage control and emergency power. During a battle, ship systems obviously become damaged. You can tell Scotty to direct damage control parties to repair things like the engines, the sensors, the bridge, and the hull. Having any of these parts of the ship damaged increases the, or sorry, decreases the Enterprise's performance. Uh, sensor damage causes the view screen to get staticky and flicker, making it hard to see. Engine damage lowers your top speed, and weapons damage obviously impacts your ability to fire and things like that. Spot can give you advice on what to do next and also has access to the library computer. The computer in this game is actually quite a wealth of information, uh, both required to complete the game with uh, you know facts like the command prefix codes for a Federation starship that you need in Mission 2, information on planets you're about to visit, or just general Trek information, which you could spend quite a bit of time reading. I remember when, when this game first came out, we didn't have things like you know the Star Trek Encyclopedia and uh, you know Memory Alpha and stuff like that. So the library computer in this game actually had quite a bit of really cool information in it that, uh, that I didn't really otherwise have access to. So after sitting there, you know, after Spock, Uhura handles communications with other ships and planets, and finally... Uh, we can talk about what we came here to talk about in the first place, navigation. Uh, Chekhov handles navigation or astrogation, I guess we can call it. And as I said, the first mission in the 25th anniversary requires us to navigate to the Pollux system. To do this, you have to bring up the game's star chart. So the star chart is also the game's method of copy protection. Games of this era went to some lengths to ensure that you didn't pirate them. Uh, the usual method... To do this back in the day required you to have the game manual on hand as kind of a reference. Some games asked you to enter certain codes or words found on specific pages of the manual. 25th Anniversary and Judgment Rights used the star map. So this map found in the game manual had all the relevant stars labeled. So you'd look up, the Poll you'd look up Pollux on the star map in the manual and then select it on the corresponding unlabeled star map in the game. Once a star system is selected, the Enterprise enters warp drive and travels to that system. If you don't select the right star, you enter a random system where you have to fight off varying numbers of Klingon, Romulan, or Elasi pirate vessels. At times it's just one-on-one, -on -one, but occasionally you might encounter unbeatable odds. So it's in your best interest to travel to the right system unless you're kind of messing around and you just want to play around with ship combat. So once you select the right star system, you generally do what Kirk would normally do, Enter orbit, contact the authorities on the planet or station, and beam down. We have arrived at Pollux 5. Entering standard orbit. Pollux 5 has recently emerged from an ice age, sir. It's spring at the moment. Cool, but tolerable. Sensors indicate previously documented flora and fauna. Nothing unusual. Message from High Prelate Robert Angevin, sir. Welcome, Enterprise. The High Prelate awaits you. Please... Beam down and meet with him. Spock, come with me. Mr. Scott, you have the car. So, in 25th anniversary, away teams always consist of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and one red shirt. Uh, this is where the second half of the game starts up. All missions at some point require you to leave the Enterprise and transport over to a planet, another ship, or a station. In this portion of the game, you control Kirk directly, and the rest of the landing party will follow him from screen to screen. You have an inventory of standard landing party equipment, including phasers, which can be set to stun or kill, science and medical tricorders, communicators, and a medkit. Uh, each of your landing party members also has relevant skills. You can command Spock to handle science or technological problems, McCoy handles any and all medical duties, and the red shirt can be commanded to do any other random or potentially dangerous tasks. There's a bit of a there's actually a bit of a mini game with the red shirt in that at some point in almost every mission, there's a way to get the red shirt killed. Uh, if Kirk, Spock, or McCoy die, then you immediately fail the mission and you have to start over or go back to a previous save. However, if the red shirt dies, you can carry on, but you do lose points on your final evaluation from Starfleet at the end of the mission. Assume firing positions. 
he's dead, Jim. The 25th anniversary also has a pretty standard uh, adventure game style interface with icons that you can select, allowing Kirk to talk, take, use, look, and walk. This, plus your inventory items like tricorders, are the primary way that you interact with your environment and other characters in order to complete your mission. So that's that pretty much for the gameplay. Uh, On to the story of 25th anniversary. This and its sequel were considered by the game designers and the writers as kind of the fourth season of the original series. So these games basically pick up right where the series left off after Turnabout Intruder. Uh, The game consists of seven unrelated missions, or I guess we could even call them episodes. It's interesting to note that one of the game designers on both games is Michael A. Stackpole, who is, uh, in addition to doing a pretty long stint in the video games industry, is also the author of many books in the Battletech and Star Wars universes. So as we've heard, the first mission on Pollux requires us to investigate demon sightings on a religious colony world. Well, it turns out there's a bit more to it than that. Upon investigating the cave where all these sightings took place, the crew encounters Klingons! Well, well, sort of Klingons. The party stuns the the, the supposed Klingons, and Spock takes a closer look at the bodies. This is not a Klingon, Captain. Not a real one. It is an organic construct, an android-like robot. It looks like a Klingon, but the appearance is entirely superficial. So it turns out the demons are actually a security system guarding a complex where an ancient race that used to inhabit the planet has been in stasis, where they entered, you know, they entered stasis to survive the planet's ice age. Kirk assists them in shutting down the security system and first contact with a previously unknown advanced race is made. So that's kind of the first, uh, a quick, a quick synopsis of the first mission in 25th anniversary. I'm not going to go through each one because we'll be here all day because there's there's a total of seven in this game. Another interesting and notable episode is episode four called Another Fine Mess. In this one, the Enterprise is ordered to the Harlequin star system to investigate an unusually high number of Alasi pirate attacks. Upon arriving, they encounter two Alasi vessels attacking a small scout ship. They turn to engage the Enterprise, allowing the scout ship to escape, for the moment, at least. The ion trail of the scout ship leads to the Harrapin system, Captain. Picking up the subspace signal, sir. It's very weak. Patch it through, Lieutenant. Enterprise? Is that you, Kirk? Friend Kirk? I can't believe they sent you to rescue me! That sounds like... No, please, say it isn't. I have a visual signal now, sir. You've come to help me, Kirk. You've got to help me! I have had a terrible misunderstanding with the Alasi pa- uh, traders. The traders! Uh, uh, they're out to kill me, Kirk! Fancy that. No, see here, Kirk. I sold my Mud's Miracle to Grimers in perfectly good faith. A little sideline work, one stand. Now they won't leave me alone. No, no! They're tracking me again. I can't send coordinates. You have to come protect me. I'm a registered ship with the Federation. Mud out. I'm afraid his ship is registered, Captain, and regulations require we respond to his distress signal. So, yes, the scout vessel is owned by none other than Harcourt Fenton Mud. Uh, He has found some strange alien cargo, claimed it as salvage, and has been selling it to the Alasi pirates. Uh, Kirk and his crew explore the alien ship, discover mysteries behind who built it, find an ancient weapon system that they can adapt for use on the Enterprise, and, and, you know, more little things like that. After fully exploring the ship, the Enterprise leaves Harry, but not before Uhura reveals that she has informed Harry's wife Stella of his current whereabouts. So while this is actually one of the more uneventful missions in the game, the inclusion of Harry Mudd did actually cause some issues. So sadly, Roger C. Carmel, who played Harry Mudd in the show, passed away in 1986, six years before the game was released. In the game, Mudd is voiced by Tom Weiner, who does a pretty good job, I think. But one thing you'll notice when you're playing, though, is that when Mudd appears in close-up on the main viewer during that audio clip I just played, his face and his upper body are kind of obscured. You don't really see them very clearly. Uh, The reason for this is that the game designers didn't realize that they would need to get likeness rights from Roger Carmel's estate. 
and by the time they figured this out, doing so would have delayed the game's launch. So instead, they simply made Mud's appearance on the viewer indistinct. So when you encounter him face-to-face -face on his ship, the graphics were low resolution enough so that likeness rights didn't really come into play. Finally, for 25th anniversary, I want to cover the last and most challenging mission, Vengeance. Here's Kirk's log entry at the start of the mission. Captain's log. They are arriving at the last known position of the USS Republic, which reported that it was under attack 12 hours ago. Captain, the ship's sensors have picked up what appears to be a starship. Minimal life support, minimal engine power, and only two life forms, one on the bridge, the other in sickbay. Both appear to be gravely injured. It is the Republic. So the first survivor dies just as Kirk and the landing party beam onto the Republic. The other survivor is revealed to be Brittany Marada, a former Starfleet Academy classmate of Kirk. She claims that it was the Enterprise which attacked the Republic, which Kirk obviously refuses to believe. However, Spock verifies this fact from the Republic's own computer logs. Kirk and the landing party beam back with their survivor and go to the Republic's last reported destination, the Federation planet Vardane. The Enterprise is then intercepted by another Constitution-class starship, which also happens to be called the Enterprise. The commander of this Enterprise reveals himself as Dr. Les Bridell, a former member of the Vardane ruling council who Kirk previously exposed for corrupt practices during his time as a lieutenant on the Farragut. Bridell claims to have gained control of the council and uh, will soon be undertaking a program of building replica Constitution-class ships, which Bridell intends to use to overthrow the Federation. The resulting final battle against Bridell's Enterprise and a pair of Alasi pirate ships is really, really quite difficult. And, uh, you know, if you, if you defeat Bridell, you basically win the game. Now, an interesting fact about this particular mission and the game in general. Both 25th Anniversary and Judgment Rights came out in two versions. A standard floppy disk version and an enhanced CD-ROM version. So all the audio I've been playing is from the CD-ROM version. Because of the increased storage space that came with CDs, uh, the CD versions were fully voiced by the original cast. The floppy versions really only had text windows that would pop up where you'd have to read all the dialogue. The other difference between these two versions, the CD-ROM version and the floppy version of 25th Anniversary in particular, is, uh, is this mission. Uh, players complained that while this mission was indeed very challenging, the mission only had a very short landing party portion where you visit the Republic, go to the bridge, go to the sickbay, and leave. So instead of a quick trip to the bridge and sickbay, there were extended scenes in the torpedo bay, more action on the bridge, and a whole bunch of other stuff like that, which really did fill out the mission and make it more enjoyable. Uh, while this extended mission was much more involved and much more interesting, it was also unfortunately quite buggy. Uh, in many cases, bugs would occur that would cause the mission to be unsolvable, like Spock had to figure, had to come to a realization on his own at a certain point in time, and that wouldn't happen, and all this, so you honestly would not be able to, uh, to complete the mission and you would get stuck. So I guess take what you'd like, a short and tough mission, or a longer, more interesting, equally tough mission that's filled with bugs. So, you know, the, those three missions are kind of, give you a bit of an idea of, of the story, stories in 25th anniversary so you know now i'll move on to the next game judgment rights so the next year in 1993 we have a direct sequel to star trek 25th anniversary called star trek judgment rights this game used basically the same game engine and the same technology as 25th anniversary uh, while the gameplay and graphics were quite similar all the cutscenes of the Enterprise flying through space and things like that are much higher resolution and look really quite good, even by today's standards. The last game had the ship's computer voiced by voiceover actress Joyce Kurtz, who did a fine job. However, this game, they got Majel Barrett Roddenberry reprising her very long, very continuous role as the ship's computer, and it really, really does complete the effect. Uh, the only downside to... Uh, in the voiced version of this game is that the uh, the computer would actually read you all the library computer entries so they really did have to cut down that library computer to only very relevant uh, very relevant entries so one final difference between these two games is the story whereas in 25th anniversary the episodes were all kind of totally self-contained just like the original series judgment rights takes a slightly different approach 
While some episodes are totally self-contained, at least half of them are part of a common overreaching story arc, which I'll cover in a bit. Uh, the game contains a total of eight episodes, and the last two are linked as actually a, a two-parter. So Judgment Rights missions are decidedly longer and a bit more involved than the ones in 25th Anniversary were. You could play through the first game in under about three hours. Judgment Rights took a good seven hours to play through, even if you knew what you were doing. So again, I'll cover a few notable episodes in Judgment Rights. The first one, entitled Federation, begins a little bit like this. Captain's log, Stardate 6223.8. We are en route to the glorious Pebble Scientific Academy, where we... Enterprise, this is Captain Luke Rayner of the USS Alexander. We have returned from the future. In eight days, the United Federation of Planets will be completely destroyed. A new... My God. Captain's log supplemental. We have tracked the Alexander's course to Espoir Station, a scientific research facility in the Omega Maelstrom sector. We are about to set course for that system, hoping to discover the subject of its last ominous message. So, a battered USS Alexander suddenly appears out of nowhere. A gravely injured Captain Raynor warns the Enterprise of the Federation's impending doom as the Alexander succumbs to its damage and explodes. The Enterprise travels to Espar Station, a Federation research station indicated by Raynor to be the source of the catastrophe. Upon beaming aboard, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are met by none other than Les Bridell, the same villain who destroyed the USS Republic in the last mission of Star Trek 25th Anniversary that we just talked about. Bridell and a group of Vardane soldiers have taken over the station. With the help of the chief scientist on board, Dr. Monroe, Bridell activates a powerful tractor beam to disable the Enterprise, and after revealing his plan, to use a cloaked secret weapon, powered by a nearby singularity against the Federation, puts Kirk, Spock, and McCoy into the brig. The heroes escape the brig with the help of a sympathetic Vardane named Manau Sheem. They proceed to extract information from the station's computer that confirms Bridell's plan to start a war with the Federation and use it to convince the station's security personnel to help them stop Bridell. After completing their takeover of the station, the heroes have a showdown with Dr. Bridell in his quarters, where he is stunned. It's then revealed that the cloaked weapon is about to fire directly at Sector 001, but the heroes manage to disable it thanks to deciphering Bridell's access codes, decloaking the weapon, and releasing the Enterprise from the tractor beam, allowing it to destroy the weapon. It's implied that Bridell himself is arrested and put on trial for war crimes. So that's the first mission of Judgment rights. As you can see, the tone in this one is uh, is quite a bit darker than uh, than the episodes in 25th Anniversary. There's more puzzles. They're more complex. At one point in this mission, uh, to unlock a computer, you actually have to play, or you have to direct Kirk to kind of play three dimensional chess. And uh, you know, if you don't really know what you're doing, then there's a bit of a strategy to it, and it, it does become quite challenging. The next episode I want to talk about in Judgment Rights is episode three, No Man's Land. And this one is also very, very, very interesting. The Enterprise is dispatched to search the Delphi system, where several Federation starships have disappeared without explanation. On approach to the Delphi system, the following scene occurs. Captain, at our current speed of warp seven, I expect to enter the Delphi system in eight minutes. Captain, I just started getting the oddest noise on all channels. It sounds like some sort of insect drone. Let's hear it, Lieutenant. What the... An object is approaching the Enterprise. Unspoke. Mr. Spock, is that what I think it is? Sensors indicate that it is an authentic Earth warplane, circa 1917, belonging to the nation of Germany. Its appearance is identical to a Fokker DR-1. Sensors also indicate an immense power source and one life form. We are being here. This is Baron Trelane von Gothis of the German Air Circus. I have identified you as an enemy aircraft. 
You have 10 seconds to surrender before I blow you out of the sky. Trelane, triplanes didn't have radios during the First World War. Captain Kirk, that is not the way for mortal enemies to greet each other on the field of battle. Of course you hadn't seen the last of me. I am Trelane, the humble Baron of Gothos. Mortal enemies? When are you going to grow up, Trelane? Not for several millennia, I'm afraid. Of course, the Baron von Gothis does not have to aspire to such lofty heights to defeat his latest victim. Why don't you aspire to lofty heights and leave us alone? And miss the opportunity to settle an old score? Captain Kirk, didn't anyone ever teach you about diplomacy or manners? There are times when I really question your reading. Sensors indicate he is closing on us. I would extrapolate that he intends to fire us. Raise shields, evasive maneuvers. So Trelane attacks the Enterprise in his World War I fighter plane. And whether the battle is won or lost, he then transports Kirk, Spock, and McCoy to a recreation of the fictional town of Gothos in 1918 Germany specifically to a wine cellar beneath one of the town's buildings that is kind of serving as a makeshift prison. In the cellar, our heroes meet the captain of the Zimbabwe, Commander Ellis, who blames Kirk for the death of his friend Ralph Garvin, who we find out was one of the red shirts who died in the original series episode Obsession. He actually specifically mentions Garvin being killed by the cloud creature. All right, Commander, you are about to tell us why you're being so hostile. Let's hear your story. Does the name Lieutenant Ralph Garvin sound familiar to you? He was my roommate at the Academy and was killed by some blood-sucking cloud while on a landing party under your command. Space is not the safest of environments. I've always done my best to protect my crew and I've always honored anyone who has lost their life under my command. The Enterprise is routinely assigned to unknown and extremely dangerous sectors. I have always made it a policy to lead landing parties and share the risk with my men. Captain, if I see you do anything that puts us or our escape at risk, you'll regret it. I'm not interested in vendettas. I'm interested in survival. If you have a problem with me, you can wait until everyone's safe. Is that clear, Commander? Yes, sir. Despite this, Ellis does help our heroes escape the cellar, and they begin to explore the town. They meet several stereotypical characters in the town, including a female spy working for the French, several patriotic Germans, and those who are opposed to the war. The town's residents, who are later revealed to be the mind-altered crew of the freighter Shinobi, which is another one of the kidnapped vessels, believe that Kirk is in fact Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Kirk, an American flying ace and nemesis of Baron von Gothos, who of course is Trelane. Now, because of this, the townsfolk extend great courtesy towards him, which allows Kirk and the rest of his team to explore the town. Our heroes spend some time uh, running various errands for the townsfolk to earn money, as well as gain their support in acquiring various mundane objects like a clock, a blackboard, and a locket, which are emanating incredible power, at least according to Spock. These objects apparently contain some of Trelane's power within them, and Spock theorizes that destroying these objects would disrupt the force field protecting Trelane's castle, which sits overlooking the town. Among other things, Kirk has an argument with a fictional fascist military officer about the merits of republicanism versus dictatorship. He breaks into the local armory to seal a package of dynamite, uh, displays his skill in playing poker, and helps a one-armed war veteran of the Franco-Prussian War clean his apartment. Uh, of note, is one scene of a frontline trench right next to the town where a lone German soldier lies perpetually dying, quote-unquote, for dramatic effect. It's made clear that this town is a very romanticized version of wartime Germany and reflects very little of the true horrors of World War I. So finally, our heroes put the three objects of power into Trelane's triplane, which is the fourth object of power, and destroy it with explosives. Now, <laughs> I don't know if it's just me, but uh, this whole thing really reminds me of uh, the Horcruxes and Harry Potter and all that. Obviously, this came before, but uh, very reminiscent of, you know, Objects of Power and Voldemort and, and all that noise. So this prompts Trelane to transport the, uh, the, the Starfleet personnel to his castle, where they discover all four hijacked ships, including the Enterprise, shrunk down into bottles sitting on Trelane's mantle. 
Examining the third ship, which is the Zimbabwe, causes Commander Ellis to fly into a rage and attack Trelane, who responds by turning Ellis into a statue. Kirk, as usual, offers himself in Ellis's place, but Trelane releases him anyways. Kirk at first attempts to convince Trelane that his parents are coming to punish him for his mischief, as they previously did. When this fails, Kirk tries to reason with Trelane persuading him to scan the Enterprise's databanks and make a true recreation of the war as it really happened. Trelane agrees and transports himself and Kirk into a bloody and grim scene of a true World War I wartime trench. It's littered with bodies, black mud, and just a really grim scene. Kirk proceeds to explain that there was nothing glorious nor romantic about the war, and he eventually does convince Trelane to explore the matter less superficially. Trelane releases the ships, but hints that he and Kirk will meet again in the future. Now, this is a really intricate and really well-written mission. The coolest thing about this is that they actually got William Campbell to come out and voice Trelane in the CD-ROM version, so the voice you heard there was actually William Campbell. Now, you know, it's missions like this that really make me love these games and remember them very fondly. This mission could have very easily been an aired episode of the original series. You have the antagonism of Commander Ellis, which, you know, I only mentioned it very briefly that he was upset about his friend dying in obsession, but that thread carries on throughout the whole mission. He gets into arguments with Kirk, things like that. You know, there's that, there's the focus on the reality of war, interactions with the town folk. I mean, this is all very, very Trek. On top of all this, and on top of all these other great missions, uh, there's kind of a B story arc, which reaches over at least half of the missions in the game. The Enterprise keeps trying to get to the planet Nova Atar for some scheduled shore leave. The problem is they keep getting sidetracked by other missions. So as you know, other missions start, Kirk's doing a log entry and says, okay, we're on the way to Nova Atar for shore leave. And then boom, Starfleet pops up and says, go here and do that. And then the next mission, back en route to Nova Atar, blah, 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 blah. And then same thing, interrupted by an emergency mission. So when they do finally get to Nova Atar in episode six, called Museum Peace, Kirk is directed by Starfleet to attend a diplomatic function at the Smithsonian Annex on this planet. This is a really fun and light episode. And here's the entertaining start to the mission. How long until we reach Nova Atar, Ensign? About 23 hours, Captain. 22 hours, 53 minutes, and 17 seconds, to be precise. Spock, there's no need to be precise. We're going on shortly. Rest, relaxation, no calls from Starfleet. Captain, we have a message coming in from Admiral Richards at Starfleet. Um, on screen, Lieutenant. Hello, Jim. I know you're going on shortly, but... What is it, Chris? Well, since you're going there anyway, and it's only a small favor... Favor? I don't want to inconvenience you, but... Fine, you have it. What would you like me to do? We recently discovered that one of the exhibits in the Smithsonian Annex at Nova Atar is of great historical significance to the Saransi, an influential family from planet Lockean. The museum is going to have a small ceremony to return the item. The Federation planned to send a representative, but, well, she couldn't make it. Since you'll be in the neighborhood, well, no dress uniforms. All you have to do is smile and shake hands. Smile, shake hands, it would be my pleasure, Admiral. My chief engineer had already promised to show me around. We'll be there. Thanks, Jim. I owe you one. Check your data files for details. Oh, one more thing, Jim. Due to the security concerns, you won't be allowed to bring any electronic equipment with you. Richard's out. Now, I was saying... Captain, do we really have to stand around and listen to speeches from a bunch of politicians? It won't be all bad, Scotty. The curator's a major cognac producer, and he asked us to show up early to thank us for our support. Captain, it'd be rude to keep a man like the curator waiting, what with an important diplomatic function to prepare for. Things turn out to be quite a bit more exciting than they had anticipated. As they are meeting with the curator, terrorists attack the museum for unknown reasons. Since they don't have any of their standard equipment with them, Kirk, Chekhov, and Scotty have to use the items and the exhibits in the museum to resolve the situation before the terrorists escape. So, you know, this is a much funnier, much more enjoyable mission, so it's not all doom and gloom, but uh, again, just really, really fun, really, really great. So, you know, that's that's all I'm going to focus on on those three for, for judgment rights. There's a total of eight. The last two are very epic. It's a, kind of a much longer 
two-part story arc, so I really do suggest that you give these two games a try. As I've mentioned before, I do have my own podcast called the Upper Memory Block Podcast where I talk about games like this, and on that show, I do like to talk about ways to get these games today. Uh, There's quite a few great sites and services where you can get old games that have been optimized to run on modern machines. One of my favorites is Good Old Games over at GOG.com. Steam also has quite a few older games for sale as well, and you can get to Steam at steampowered.com or download the client and all that stuff. Now, sadly, these two games are not among any of the games that are offered on those two sites or on any other for-pay sites on the internet. Well, we can't know for sure, these two games likely fall under the category of abandonware. So abandonware is defined as a product for which no product support is available or for which the manufacturer is ignoring the product. Usually this consists of software that is no longer supported or no longer sold or runs on unsupported or outdated hardware or operating systems like these ones that run on the old DOS operating system. Now, there are quite a few sites where you can get abandonware, though the tough part about this is that this stuff kind of sits in a legal gray area. A lot of people will tell you that abandonware drops into the public domain and that it can be freely distributed. And this... Well, it's kind of true, isn't entirely the case. Now, the owners of the copyright of these games never officially revoked that copyright. So it's more than likely that because they're so old and they're not selling it anymore, they're not enforcing it. But that doesn't mean that they never will. Technically, sharing the software is piracy and copyright infringement, but the copyright holders rarely, rarely do enforce it. Now, there's quite a few abandonware sites out there, like I said, and a popular one today is called Abandonia. I won't link it directly because I don't want to get Rico in trouble, but uh, a quick search on there or on Google will turn up places to get the original no-speech floppy disk version of both of these Trek games. The fully voiced versions are a bit tougher to find since the downloads for them are quite a bit bigger, kind of upwards of, you know, four or five hundred megs. I was able to find them on BitTorrent without too much trouble. Now, the sad thing is that these are really great games that do a really great job of capturing the style, fun, and humor of the original series, and they feature the whole cast in their old roles. In fact, Star Trek Judgment Rights is actually the last time the whole cast reprised their roles before DeForest Kelly passed away. Judgment Rights is the last time that DeForest Kelly played his role of Dr. McCoy. It's, it's, it's unfortunate that there's really no easy, no legal way to buy these games because these are a piece of Trek and some Trek adventures that, you know, no, most people haven't seen. Another problem with these is getting them to work on your modern Windows PC or your Mac is, uh, you know, a little bit challenging. These games won't start on modern operating systems, and even if they did, they would run way too fast. A very popular solution that I talk about a lot over at my podcast is called DOSBox. This is an emulator that creates a virtual DOS computer on top of your Windows or Mac machines. Uh, If you'd like to know more about DOSBox, I did an entire episode on emulation over at my show at umbcast.com. I'm pretty sure it's episode 6. So just under the wire, I did receive an audio comment, and it's not just any audio comment. It is an audio comment from the man himself, Mr. Rick Dosti. So uh, you can't keep Rico down, even on his week off. He is still kind of podcasting. So here we go. Comment from Rico. Take it away. Hello, Joe, and hello, Trex in Sci-Fi. This is Rico <laughs> sending in a comment when I'm not actually doing the podcast. That's, uh, it's something I've been trying to do more often, but I don't know. It just doesn't seem to happen uh, too easily, especially when I have weekends off from doing the show. But anyway, today uh, you're talking about uh, a couple of Star Trek games, some, some old-school Trek games, uh, the 25th anniversary one, and I think... Uh, Judgment Rights was, wasn't that like the sequel to it, I believe? Pretty similar type of game. Anyway, yeah, those games I I really enjoyed a lot. Uh, They, you know, by today's standards, they had crude graphics and sound effects. You know, the the video and audio 
uh, impact or, or look of those games. It wasn't anywhere near like Star Trek Online can do for you these days. But there was some kind of a charm about those things. And they were like these, there was this period of time where they were making these adventure games. And I'm sure Joe's been talking about that uh, quite a bit. So you'd go around on these little missions and find things and try to fix something that was broken on the ship. And, and I, I just love that stuff. And I, you know, I played both of those all the way through. And I'm not really very good about completing uh, computer games in general and those are a couple of games I definitely completed and and had uh, just a great deal of fun with playing and, and you know it was a time when there wasn't a lot of Star Trek games and things out there to do so so even though there aren't really I guess these days that many but um, you know it was just really nice I don't know what I was playing it on computer wise at the time maybe a, what it was it in that era like a 486 or something like that I don't remember early 90s I think but yeah, that is uh, you know some cool stuff, and and, it, and it's great uh, you know that uh, you're covering these games for all the listeners. Uh, I really appreciate it, Joe. And uh, oh, and I have to say something. Uh, I don't know if you've commented on it at all, slipped it in yet, or whatever. But Star Trek Into Darkness, the official title for the next Star Trek movie. I like it. It's 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 all right. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about the movie, but uh, but anyway, I like the title. So, Joe, have a great uh, podcast. I, again, I appreciate it, and uh, I'll talk to everyone for a full show next week. Thanks so much for that, Rico. And um, you know, I'll agree. These these games do have a, a certain, I guess we can call it amount of amount of charm to them. And you know, I've been trying to not get overly technical on about you know computers and graphical resolution. And all that, but you know, it does it does bear saying. You know, these these games, I believe, twenty uh, fifth anniversary, at the very least, was in uh, three twenty by two hundred two hundred fifty six color VGA graphics. So you know, they weren't. It wasn't video. It wasn't high resolution, or anything like that. But you know, the the graphics weren't so crude as oh well. You know, Kirk is a yellow square and Spock is a blue square with you know pointy things coming out of him. You could tell very much that this was an animated version of Kirk, an animated version of Spock. Uh, you know, you could see them working on things, picking things up, and you know, firing their phasers, and and the graphics were for the time pretty pretty good. I, I think they actually they, they weren't by any means necessarily revolutionary, but uh, but they were very um, they were very passable. And I think even today, though they do look dated and they do look pixelated, and you know, the colors are very flat and all of that. Um, you know, I think they do the job. I think they really do. They 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 give you kind of a, a good representation of what's going on and and all of that. So yeah, I, I agree. And you know, you, you'd be right about that time would be a 486. The minimum requirements were, I think, a 386SX, which uh, I think I actually originally played 25th anniversary on a game on a machine like that. And it did run quite slowly. This was a fairly demanding game, as was Judgment Rights. Judgment Rights, actually, the floppy disk version came on I believe it was 11 floppy disks. So even without all the voice acting, it was still a pretty big game for the time. 11 floppy disks was, you know, most games came on, you know, say Wing Commander that came out, you know, a year before or two years before came on three floppy disks. Other games would come on maybe six or five floppy disks and Judgment Rights was 11 disks. It was it was a big game, so... You know, they, they were cool games for the time. And, and, and you know, yeah, I, I really suggest that people do give them a go. So thanks a lot for that, Rico. Thanks for taking time off of your week weekend off from the show to, to drop me a little comment. And, of course, I did mention the, uh, the, name, of the, uh, the name of the movie. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm impartial to it. I think it's, it's a fine name. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. You are so that's it i know this time around the format wasn't quite the same as usual but i hope you all enjoyed it nonetheless thanks as always to everyone who emailed in about dune and other stuff really really love it when i get your emails and next time i will be covering one of my list of shame games beneath a steel sky I'm looking forward to it, and if you are too, as I just said, please send an email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Really love those audio comments. 
Thanks to Rick Moyer, as always, for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Tons of fun in there. I just put up some vacation pictures if anyone wants to see me standing on a mountain. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash group slash umbcast and on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast. It seems like forever since I put up a video, I'm definitely going to be throwing up some Beneath a Steel Sky on there. And uh, if I do start playing through Broken Age, I'm probably going to stream that too. So keep an eye on the YouTube channel in the coming days and weeks and uh, you're going to see some fun stuff. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me some reviews over there. I love them. All the stars you want to give me, preferably five. So that's it for another show, and we will see you next time for Beneath a Steel Sky here in the Upper Memory Block. Control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.